Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the COVID-19 pandemic continues, and we tackle it from every angle. A local brewery is buying a beer for frontline workers, and how bad will the economy get? We'll try to tackle those issues on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, yesterday the U.S. government unveiled they will look into suspending funding for the World Health Organization. Reasons behind that, um, uh, President Trump says that uh, uh, the World Health Organization has... uh, has dropped the ball in this scenario and seems to be too China-centric. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. Hope you are, too. Oh, yeah, getting by. Uh, your thoughts on what uh, the president has said in regard to the World Health Organization of late? Well, twofold. Um, number one, I have absolutely no issue with the United States uh, wanting to do a review of the World Health Organization, or WHO. There's no question that there are a lot of concerns that exist in terms of the way the WHO performs certain things, including the release of numbers, analytics, recommendations, etc. I think it's actually very healthy for any sort of a democratic society to want to have a review or see review in this case. And if other countries call for it, I think it will be justified. The problem, though, is I just think the timing is completely wrong. The first priority of the United States right now should be to deal with the coronavirus pandemic and wait, you know, at least get it to a point where the curve has been flattened or the numbers drop to some extent. The United States right now has the unfortunate honor, or dishonor, I guess, of being the leading country in terms of active COVID-19 cases and total deaths. In fact, their active case total is well over 600,000, and they are the only country in the world to have even scratched the 200,000 mark as of right now. With this in mind, I think that President Trump is certainly right to want to review the WHO, and taking away funding from them, I think he went a little too quickly on that, but again, it's his prerogative. The whole point is, though, I just don't think the timing was good because the U.S. is struggling mightily at this point, so they need to get things under control before they start focusing on something like the World Health Organization. So why is Donald Trump doing this now? (laughs) I can't get inside his mind. I mean, obviously, he does whatever he feels is right You know, we said this a million times. He marches the beat of his own drum. If he feels that the timing is right to go after the WHO, he will. And my guess is that there probably are some advisors who have said to him that, yes, Mr. President, you're absolutely right. I'm sure some have obviously disagreed with it and provided reasons why. But ultimately, it's Donald Trump who makes that decision. And he basically goes for the jugular. This has been his style both as a businessman and as a politician the past few years. So I don't think we should be necessarily surprised that he's done it. But again, not to be a broken record, I just think the timing was completely wrong in doing so. Uh, what about his points that uh, it is too China-centric and they delayed in getting the message out? Are those points valid? They're not completely invalid in the sense that no organization is China-centric, to use that quote. But there certainly is 
a recognized tie between the World Health Organization and China, mostly due to its current president and some of the senior leadership. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's this grand conspiracy going on. But on the other hand, we know how China has handled things since the beginning of COVID-19. We know that there have been questions about their total number of cases or active cases and their total number of deaths. A lot of people believe that China, it, whatever they're projecting right now or whatever they've reported on is not completely accurate, which would obviously not change the situation of the coronavirus pandemic around the world, but it would at least make us uh, probably more assured that we know where the maximum could be and how high some of the largely populated countries could potentially reach. We're seeing it right now with the United States, but who knows, for all we know, the actual Chinese numbers may be very, very high and much higher than what's been reported. So for a lot of those reasons and more, I don't think the criticism is necessarily wrong. It's just that if you're claiming that they're all marching lockstep with one another, I think that's a completely separate issue. But again, it's also something that a review could either show to be valid or invalid. Uh, We've certainly seen over the last 25 years, China has gained ground in the world economy. They've uh, interwoven themselves through uh, many economies, many universities, many institutions. Right. uh, And in some case, law. I mean, you know, we see what's happening with the the Huawei CFO in Vancouver. So why are we to think that they're not interwoven into the World Health Organization? Oh, it's not that I don't think or not think. I just said it's not been proven at this stage. And, you know, I, I know you can go back to a proof's a proof's a proof. I mean, we, know, we all know that. <laughs> Many years ago by Spiro Agnew. But it, it, it doesn't matter. The point is that it's fine to say as a, as a point of conjecture. You know, I think that's acceptable. It's also fine. It's also, you know, you can certainly argue in a democratic society that it may or may not be valid. But to say forthrightly that it's accurate without really looking into the matter completely, firstly, it's not best practices. And secondly, it doesn't provide any sense of accuracy about the situation. So the answer is, Scott, yes, it's possible. But until we do a deep dive into it, we really don't know. Um, While Donald Trump is is slowly dividing uh, the world or dividing his country, uh, is China making friends with everyone? I mean, we saw last week when uh, Donald Trump said that, uh, you know, he was uh, hoarding the mass. I don't want to say hoarding the mass, but certainly locking <laughs> down American companies to say, you know, don't like send stuff to Latin America or don't send stuff to Canada. And then all right. of a sudden, uh, China donates a bazillion masks. Huawei d- donates uh, lots of supplies and stuff. It, it, it's it's odd that now, it, does Donald Trump realize that he's making it appear that that China is more of our friend than what the United States is? Well, um, I I think Donald Trump has sort of blown hot and cold on China, much the same way he's blown hot and cold on, well, Russia, North Korea, and other countries. With China, if you remember, before everything really erupted last month, you know, Donald Trump was basically saying that he thought that China was able to handle the situation properly, that they were containing it, They had locked down several cities, including Wuhan, where it had started, Shanghai and various others, or in Beijing as well, and various others. And he thought that he was handling things properly until we started to get more information, more numbers, and realized that, quite frankly, the the Chinese, yes, they had moved, and yes, they tried to control to some degree, 
but it was continuing to explode for a period of time. We know that right now the Chinese have said, certainly over the last month, that things have dramatically slowed down, although new cases are popping up from time to time, but just not on the level we saw very early in this year. Um, I, I think that basically Donald Trump has changed his tune on China, much the way other world leaders have changed their tune about how to handle the coronavirus, how to deal with things, whether to stay home or not, the pros and cons of lockdowns of a country, et cetera, et cetera. So there are things that have been said that obviously any world leader reflecting back on it, he, she, they, they will, will all say that we, we should have thought about it or we should have said something, we should have said it a bit differently. But as to whether people are, you know, quote unquote, making friends with China, making friends with the U.S. and who should be trusted more in each instance. I mean, again, we have to sort of look back to the point that whether people like it or not, this virus started in China, most likely in Wuhan, most likely in that seafood market. Although I know there's a story going out that there was some laboratory work being done with bats. I mean, who knows if that's true or not? Let's, let's do the safe one and just say the seafood market, which is bad enough in itself. I think we have to show that, you know, that's where the, that's where the starting point was. That's where it began. That's how it began to explode. That's why it's reached this part of the world. And, you, ha- you know, you can certainly point fingers and make the comment. It was China where it all began. So if China was making friends with people, well, I think a lot of that has ended. If anything, I think after the coronavirus pandemic has ended, I think a lot of countries, including the United States, are going to have to re-examine their political and economic relationship with China. And I know people say, well, how can they do that? China is too powerful. We, you know, we strongly doubt anyone will reach that point. Maybe so, but to completely ignore it after the fact that the last two major pandemics in this world both originated from the same country, and clearly over the past 17 years not much has changed, well, maybe our behavior has to change. How will China explain itself? Because we've already seen the spin in them trying to save the world from, as you said, a virus that came from China. Yeah. Uh, now, now they're going to be the savior with, with supplies and such. But as you mentioned, once we're out of this, how does China explain itself? China was a, a, a country that everyone wanted to be a part of mm-hmm. for the last 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, how will that change moving forward? What, what does China have to do to, uh, to explain itself to the world? Well, it's, it goes back to a point of whether <clears throat> China feels the need to explain itself, which is something very different. You know, obviously they will come out. Is it too powerful now to care? It doesn't matter. We're so big. We're, we're the factory of the world. You still got to buy all your crap from us. We don't care. Yeah. I mean, in, in a summary, that's sort of where I was going, which is the sense that China believes that it, it correctly knows that it is one of the greatest superpowers when it comes to economies. There, is no, there are very few economic structures, and that includes the United States, the European Union and others, very few blocks or countries are as powerful as China or even reach the lengths of China. I mean, China is the world's largest owner of American debt, which means in effect, and I know people don't like to look at it this way, but it really does mean this. It really basically means that China owns most of the United States. So I don't think the Chinese government and the communist government really cares all that much in terms of how much criticism they receive. And as you correctly pointed out, Scott, they're going to try to use this C 
savior mode or the second phase of everything. That China is going to bring out supplies, uh, extra bodies, medical staff, whomever, whatever people need to help, you know, to help everyone get along, help, help the, the world get better, much like they did when they initially started with France, providing the medical supplies, and now they've reached other countries as well. China will probably hope that everything else will be swept under the rug as long as they sort of come out and sort of be the great savior of the world. I don't see how they can be, though, and I think that people still have long memories when it comes to SARS back in 2003, the swine flu in 2009, and what we're experiencing now with the coronavirus pandemic between 2019 and 2020. I think that when you continue to look at it and you keep pointing fingers and saying, well, where did this come from? Where did it originate? Who should we blame, if anyone, for these messes? It keeps coming back to China. So how will they explain themselves? They'll say whatever they want. That's unfortunately how tyrannies, including this communist dictatorship in China, is going to handle things. But will uh, Ch- people buy it? I don't know if they will as much as they did with SARS and the swine flu. Uh, we remember uh, pre-COVID-19, China was having issues already. Uh, the situation, the riots in Hong Kong, what was happening, yep. uh, power struggles. Obviously, many thought that they would tone it down after taking over Hong Kong. It seems Correct. just the opposite has happened. So how strong is China within its own borders? Are the citizens still buying in after this? Yeah, well, I mean, in fairness, a lot of people didn't think they would calm down with Hong Kong. I certainly didn't, and I know a lot of others didn't. I think a lot of people realize this this whole theory of two countries, one two countries, one economy. It was illogical, and everybody knew it to begin with. Especially because Hong Kong had become a leading country when it came to democracy, Western-style capitalism, and just a believer in the free market economy. It wasn't possible. But again, the Chinese have a, have a real issue here. They realize that if a lot of countries decide not to work with them, to deal with them economically, that no matter what they currently have, they'll start to plummet. And that would obviously make the communist government fearful, not because there's any political opposition there, but if things turn even greater and you know even become worse there over a period of time, well, that would then give people the idea or lead to the rise of political opponents who could gradually defeat this government. Now, I know people will say, but what about Tiananmen Square and various other things? How could that happen? You'd be amazed what could happen to a country if its economy starts to plummet like crazy. A lot of things, unfortunately, do happen. We can look throughout history that way. And certainly China would be susceptible to it if it happens. Now, on the other hand, The coronavirus pandemic will end. It's not going to go on forever, so it will end one day. Let's say, for argument's sake, hypothetically, it ends next year, sometime in 2021. People may be furious at China in private, but continue to deal with them in public, much like things have been happening lately. But you're right. A lot of things have changed. The way that the China-Hong Kong clashes as of last year really caught people by storm. And the fact that the democracy movement was growing in Hong Kong, we've experienced in Canada with the, you know, our icy relations due to the two Michaels who are still in the death camp, Huawei Technologies, which you alluded to earlier, you know, Meng Wanzhou is still in Vancouver, you know, and awaits deportment at, you know, at some point. I think she will be sent over to the U.S., but it hasn't happened, you know, based on things that are going on right now. COVID-19 obviously outweighs every other measure. Um, I think that China's 
the, the shine that they've had for a long period of time has certainly started to wear off, and it could more so if they're not able to overcome the mass amount of criticism that's going to, well, be laid upon their feet very, very shortly. And if they can't get past it, well, then it'll be interesting to see what happens to them. Uh, we know uh, after watching Donald Trump, uh, his divisive style and such, whether it's with people in his own country, in his own party, whether it's people uh, or other allies and such, is yeah. China is China using this? Is is China using the divisiveness that's now in America and in, therefore the world to gain leadership? Uh, uh, you know, the old days, post-World War II, America was sort of the world police. They seem to be ignoring that role right now. Is China mm-hmm. going to fill that? Is China going to fill that vacuum? I don't think so. I think most people see through China, quite frankly. I think most people see through communism as an ideology. So, no, I, I actually don't think so. Now, naturally, there will be countries around the world, including you know, friendships and alliances they have throughout Europe, uh, Africa, for example, which is about to start in the next few weeks getting hit very hard by COVID-19. There will obviously be regions of the world, continents, etc., who admire China, respect their, you know, respect their position and will thank them, you know, immeasurably for all of their help. But to say that China would replace Western democracies like the U.S., which is an easy one, as sort of a standard bearer, so to speak, which is, I guess, where you're getting at. I doubt it. I mean, yes, I agree that obviously U.S. President Donald Trump, or just the Trump era in politics, has changed a lot of people's minds and perceptions about, you know, how strong an ally the United States is, whether they can be trusted, etc. But on the other hand, you know, Donald Trump, for all the zaniness and craziness we've seen, and we don't have to go through all of it, you know, he still is aligned with other Western democracies. He's just sort of walking on his own path. He's not closely united with them. He's not attached to the hip. But at the same time, he's not moving in a completely different direction and doing something like that we saw, just to use a wild example, like what Cuba did many years ago when the Castros tried to align with the United States. You know, Dwight D. Eisenhower repelled them. So they basically walked into the hands of the old Soviet Union. That's not happening in the U.S., so I don't think one is one hand is washing the other. But certainly, as long as someone like U.S. President Donald Trump is in power, there will naturally be a lot of countries and a lot of regions around the world that will look for um, other saviors, I guess is the best way to look at it. I don't think China, though, is going to be one of them, no matter what they do to help out with the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, last question, how do we balance, uh, or politicians balance, our love affair with China and their money and the communist superpower that it is that we're seeing now again? Well, I don't necessarily, I would disagree with one thing. I don't think it's a love affair with China. There may be a love affair with its money. I'll go that far. But, the, but China itself is closely aligned with the communist dictatorship. And for that reason... I don't think people are going to admire, respect, or be thrilled by a totalitarian state that we're actually seeing. At the same time, though, how do they, how are they going to make that break? I don't know. I mean, you and I have talked about China over the years, and I don't know what other guests have told you. I've always sort of suggested that you have to walk on eggshells with China, that you can obviously attack them in public, criticize them for the lack of democracy, human rights, women's rights, etc., but you still have to play ball with them because their economy is so large. If at the end of all this, if you look at a crystal ball and 
China's economy is still as strong or stronger now than it was, well, by the end of the coronavirus pandemic than it is today, I don't think there's really much you can do. You'll have to deal with them to some extent. You can obviously criticize them in public, but it's pretty hard to completely ignore them. What has to happen is Western democracies and other countries around the world have to align against them, have to basically state that no matter how powerful China is, no matter how strong it is, no matter how important its money is in various avenues, we are not going to specifically deal with them anymore. If something like that happened, well, that would change the narrative completely. I'm just not convinced we're coming to that point. I think countries have to re-examine their approach with China and their relationships with them, both politically and economically. But to actually think that the whole world is going to be turned upside down because of this, we certainly have via the coronavirus, that's for sure. Whether the same thing happens to China at some point, geez, I don't know, Scott. It would be nice, but I'm not going to assume anything either. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, thank you for the time as always. Much, uh, much appreciated. Be well. You too. Stay safe. Sorry. Somebody must be walking their dog, and my dog sees that. Uh, yesterday, a local brewery unveiled that they'd like to supply a beer or two to frontline workers who are nominated by the public. And the response has been pretty good. To talk about all of this, Ed Madronich Madrona- uh, is with us. Sean and Ed Brewery and is with us now. Ed, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Great to be here, Scott. Uh, tell everybody about Sean and Ed Brewery first. Uh, we're a local brewery in Dundas, Ontario, making, you know, we focus in on lagers and we think we make some absolutely amazing beers, but most importantly, you know, we believe beers for sharing. That's why our tagline is forged in friendship. It was a couple of buddies from university, myself and Sean getting together to put it together so we can share this beer with our friends. So how did you come up with this idea? You know, we, you know, when, when all of this happened, um, we sort of, internalized said well what can we do to help our community because community is one of our supporting our community is one of our core principles and you know we don't do high test alcohol so we couldn't do hand sanitizers we can't make ppe equipment and the one thing we thought is you know when when a friend of yours does a good turn for you you want to buy that person a beer and that's really sort of the the nugget that we sort of latched onto is what what can we do is when our frontline friends are out there doing a really good turn for us with everything that's going on we want to be able to buy, we can buy them a beer. And so we launched this program and we want to buy 25,000 beers for our frontline workers. So how does this work? How, how are you going to process this? So um, the way it works is jump on Instagram or Facebook, easy way for us to, for you guys, for the people out there to nominate somebody. Uh, we will then get back in touch with you uh, and confirm everything. And you can come by the brewery. Uh, we try and set it up. So it's very safe. It's touchless. Uh, you come by the brewery between five and seven, you text us, we've got a, a dedicated number and we'll come out and drop the, the beer into your car. And it can either be the nominating person can come pick it up to go give it to their friend, or it can be, we'd love to see the people who are nominated come by and, and pick up the beer. And that's really and, as, as simple as that. And who can be nominated? Anybody, we're not going to get too particular on who, what, what constitutes a frontline friend. It's obviously doctors, nurses, uh, ambulance drivers, police officers. Those are the easy ones. But to me, grocery clerks and other people that are doing, uh, doing things out there to keep us going in this awkward time, I would say. So we're not, 
we're not going to sort of sit there and say, oh, no, that doesn't qualify. Look, if you believe it's a frontline worker, that's good enough for us. So what do they get? They're going to get a four-pack of beer, of Sean and Ed beer, and we're going to hopefully That's spread great. it out. Hopefully the demand doesn't go too crazy. Free beer, I know, is, uh, is, uh, <laughs> is uh, something that will be in demand, but we're hopefully going to spread it out over four weeks. We want to do uh, a different beer a week, and, uh, and you know, we've got four core beers, and we want to spread that out, and uh, that's how, what's going to happen. So what has the response been like so far, Ed? Uh, the response has been great, right? Absolutely phenomenal. I think uh, I know the team at the brewery has been surprised and maybe a little bit overwhelmed, and we're making sure we're resourcing up to make sure we can satisfy the demand. And, you know, at the end of it for us, it's just we're super, super proud to be able to buy, you know, 25,000 beers for the people that are doing yeoman's work right now. So how has this affected Sean and Ed Brewery over and above all of this? As you head into this, we're into week five. How has this affect your, affected your business? You know, uh, the biggest part that it's, a, well, we can't see the people as much anymore, which is obviously a big part of our, our business. Uh, our licensee, our restaurant partners, obviously are struggling at this time. Uh, uh, part of this initiative is we're going to support our restaurants by um, uh allowing them to be able to offer free beer to their frontline friend uh, customers who are coming in and buying takeout. So that'll, we'll launch that probably in the next couple of days uh, as part of this program. Um, so really those are the two areas that I think are our biggest to the business where, you know, obviously we're not selling much to, to restaurants right now. So uh, is your business uh, sustainable to get through this? Many small businesses are concerned about what comes out the other end of COVID-19. Uh, look, I think if, uh, the reality is, is obviously we're going to struggle for hopefully not too long, but we're going to struggle and we're going to get through it. You know, I've made a commitment to, to all my full-time employees that they're going to have jobs all the way through this. And I, you know, I give, you know, we're going to figure out a way through it. It's not ideal. Uh, and there's going to be some struggles along the way, but, um, you know, we'll get through it. And, you know, I just look at the community support that we have, uh, you know, whether it's Sean and Ed Brewing Company, buy local, support our local businesses, uh, whether it's restaurants, anything else we can do, uh, it's more important than ever that the people out there think about how they can how they can transfer whatever dollars they are spending into the local community. Uh, when does this all start? Is it now? Is uh, it start as of now, or when? When does this kick off? Yeah, it, it, you can go on now. You can go online right now, and if you nominate somebody, you can come pick up some beer between five and seven this afternoon. Uh, I'm going to be there handing it out. And uh, look, it's uh, it's it's up and running and ready to go. What a great idea, Ed. Ed Madronich has been with us. Sean and Ed Brewery out of Dundas, and for those frontline workers who we are all so thankful to. Uh, they are buying them a couple of free beers. You can't argue with that. And if you want to find out more, Ed, you go to Facebook and your Instagram pages, correct? Yes, absolutely. All right. Uh, Sean and Ed Brewery at Madronovich has been with us. Ed, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, some of the financial numbers that are coming out are just absolutely brutal. And uh, many comparing this not to recessions in the past, but the actual Great Depression. Uh, the Bank of Canada says the economic downturn uh, because of COVID-19 uh, could be the worst on record. 
no, will be the worst on record. Uh, Bank of Canada uh, Governor Stephen Polo says conditions, uh, if conditions improve quickly, the economic shock is likely to be abrupt and deep, but relatively short-lived, followed by a strong rebound for most, but not all, sectors of the economy. But he said that all depends on when the economy reopens. Given where we are today, it's probably rough, roughly what we could achieve as a best-case scenario. And that would be, uh, you know, a beginning of the lifting of uh, containment measures end of May, sometime, something like this, uh, May, late May or early June. All right, let's bring in Michael Beal, professor with the Department of Economics at McMaster University. He is with us now. Michael, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. I hope you're doing well during this time. I am. Hope you're doing well, too. Yeah, we're getting along like everybody else, I guess. Uh, with the news that had come out today, you can't be surprised. What are your thoughts? Well, my first is, of course, that this has been much worse than I expected it would be, even looking back a month ago. And so looking forward, we have to be aware that there's the possibility that it's going to be worse now than we expect. And, of course, there's the possibility that it'll be better than we expect but I think the Bank of Canada numbers were not really very surprising. I mean, anybody out there understands the economy has taken this huge hit during March. I don't think we should worry about it as being Great Depression-like, because the thing about the Great Depression was that it was long. It was 10 years. Um, if we have a month of this, that's something we can recover from. If it's years and years, of course, that's much more serious. And it is kind of difficult to compare past issues like the Great Depression, apples to oranges. I mean, the system just is not the same anymore, correct? It's not the same in, in many ways. There, isn't the, there wasn't the social safety net then. Uh, we didn't understand as much as we do now about uh, central banking, and the Bank of Canada, of course, has been very active to try to minimize the, the damage. And again, the length of the event was, was very peculiar, uh, to obviously, to North American history, and we're not looking at something that's going to be that long, at least according to the experts who, who know things about vir virology that I don't know. What about the fact that these numbers are, you know, by the time we get these numbers, they're a month or so old. We're really, this is expressing what is happening in the past month. What about the month or two to come from now? I mean, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. No? Yes, the numbers are, are not very helpful at this stage. I mean, we know it's taken a, a, a huge hit. The Bank of Canada was saying 15 to 30 percent. My own guess is that's, if anything, a little an underestimate of the, of the short, sharp pain. But it depends, of course, how long you take it as a period. If you take it over the year, we're not, I think, at this point, looking at a cut of 30% of GDP over the year. We're probably looking at uh, something much more like 5% because you've spread it over a year. And, of course, that assumes that there's going to be a, a rebound to uh, the current crisis. What about from a world perspective? Uh, sometimes we hear of recessions, depressions hit certain parts of the world harder than others. Is this pretty much a blanket? Uh, is this blanket pain here, or, or are there other parts of the world that will do better than others? There are other parts of the world that do better than others. Uh, Canada, I think, is, is positioned to do reasonably well. Um, I think there are, there are going to be grave problems in Europe as a developed economy, and, of course, the poorer economies. They're trying to, to fund some of the same sorts of measures that we are, and they don't have the resources to start with. How will this change things moving forward? Uh, as as uh, the Bank of Canada president said, that you know this will be a deep 
uh, a recession, but it will come back quickly. What about, and usually with times like this, there's certain things that survive, there's certain things that don't. How will we look coming out the other end of this? Well, I'm still on the optimistic end in the sense that I think we're going to come out of it pretty quickly. Uh, We're going to end up with our governments having a lot more debt, and that's going to be a problem. Um, I do think that the key now is to try to make sure there's as little structural damage to the economy as possible. Um, That is, as many businesses come through as absolutely possible, uh, people get back to their jobs. Uh, But again, it's so hard to forecast because the forecast fundamentally depends on what's going to happen with the virus. And I don't know what's going to happen with the virus. How does government uh, regenerate an economy that has gone through what this will have gone through by the time it's over? Is it a case of uh, investing in a lot of infrastructure projects? What do they? What can they do to kickstart all of this? Well, I hope so. I hope that uh, we did, we've now put a lot of money into short-term relief programs, and that was appropriate. Uh, but in the end. The economy has to produce. Our current situation is not sustainable. We've got to produce things. And one of the ways we can produce is we can start to do infrastructure, as you say. So I hope we will start to do those things. I think that they need to be done quickly because it takes some time to get these things going in place. Um, and it's, we're really taxing our governments because it's a difficult thing to do uh, just to run the relief programs and, and run the health measures that they're worrying about. But I think, in addition, we need to get another ball in the air. We need them to be starting to move towards infrastructure and basically ways to to get the economy moving when it is safe to do so. Uh, How do you, you know, we've often heard, and especially now as we're getting towards the peak of this or the rounding of the curve, although we're not certainly not there yet, and as we go down the backside, uh, we still have to keep these measures in place because there's still an awful lot of people uh, that are sick, even though the numbers of becoming sick each day would be dropping on the downside of that curve. How How does industry, how does government manage flipping the switch again because it's not just a case of opening the barn door and everybody running out well we've never been here before so i don't know but to to give a little bit of optimism to this uh, you're working from home i'm working from home uh, lots of other people are doing so who knew that we would be able to achieve this transition a month ago mm. Mm. and so the economy consists i mean it's it's a truism but it's a lot of people and people have all sorts of abilities to adjust to adverse circumstances. And not everyone can because some people, of course, are in very tragic circumstances. But, but most people can and most people are starting to do that, adjust in various ways. So I think we'll find it's not just governments, it's individuals. We'll find all sorts of ways to adjust to this new reality and the economy will respond because we will collectively be producing more by thinking of new ways to do things. Uh, in the old days of the old economy, uh, you'd have to go to work, you'd have to go to a factory, you'd have to do something, produce something in order to make a living and, and keep the country going. As you've said, an awful lot of us are working from home now uh, and, and, and have had to in a very, very short amount of time. Um, will all those people be going back to work or will businesses say to themselves, why are we spending money on rent when we can be doing this? That's a very interesting question, and I, I think uh, there's this comment that a, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste, and one of the things you can learn from a crisis is you can learn about new ways to do things that might be more efficient, might be more effective. 
And I think that'll be one that'll that'll happen to some degree. I think there'll be others as well. Uh, do you think we will, uh, and again, uh, I remember post 9-11, uh, people were saying the world will never be the same, and in many ways it wasn't. What are your thoughts post-COVID-19? Are, 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 is there going to be a bigger impact than what we realize? Is this going to be a bigger change than what we realize? Because we're in the midst of it now, once we get out the other side. Yes, well, I, as you can tell, I'm an optimist about the economy. I, I believe in people being able to adjust. And I think you make a great example when you think about the financial crisis. At the time, people thought we'd never, we'd never recover. And, of course, we did. Uh, people talk about the... Um, the the tragedy in, in New York with the uh, 9-11, uh, people thought that airline travel would never recover, and of course it did. And so things will adjust. Uh, we don't know exactly how they will adjust, but uh, the ingenuity of humans is, is almost unlimited, and we'll figure out a way. Uh, oil industry, this is sort of a double-edged sword for Canada because the energy industry is taking a hit as well as everything from COVID-19. Where do you see all that coming out in the end of all of this? Yeah, this is very sad because I think Canadian policy uh, towards Alberta and, and energy matters has, has, has not been very effective or fair, and I think Alberta has just grievance. And now it turns out that through factors beyond Alberta's control, um, oil prices are really low, and it's not entirely clear what the way out of that is. Um, I think that, for example... Uh, energy infrastructure that made a lot of sense when oil was 50 or $60 a barrel may not make sense at today's prices. And that's, that's really difficult because, as I say, I believe that Canada has treated Alberta unfairly in the past. And now it may, it may not uh, be effectively insured against this, this low um, oil price. So the uh, short answer to your question is I, I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I do think that there are going to be great strains on the Federation of Canada that, that come out of this. Uh, obviously, the uh, price is low because of what's happening with COVID-19, but also what's happening with Saudi Arabia and Russia and, and those two duking it out, per se. Um, once things turn around and we come out the other end, won't consumption just automatically go up? Won't, uh, won't this industry automatically just take off again? Because it's not like you know, we, we've all automatically discovered all of these other sources of energy while we were in hibernation. We still have to get things back to where they were. Do you see that happening and the price going back up just because of consumption? Well, uh, we talk about this fairly often. Um, if I knew how to forecast any price, I would yeah. make a lot of money. So if I thought that oil prices were going to go up, I could invest in oil futures and, and, and make some money. But the people whose job it is to to invest in oil and uh, do not see that price increase coming. Um, if it comes, then you're absolutely right. Then it'll recover and Alberta will become the economic dynamo it was and that'll be a wonderful situation. Uh, is, that because of, is that because of too much supply now? Yeah, the thing is that the, what has been driving the oil price down over time is basically, particularly in the United States, has been oil shale. In other words, new technologies have brought new oil on stream. And Canada's oil, a lot of it is relatively expensive to produce from the uh, oil sands, for example, or from Hibernia and Newfoundland and, and Labrador. So the problem is, is that cheap oil is coming into the market, and I don't see it stopping. And so 
that was a long-term driver for lower prices. And then if uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia are deciding not to collaborate to maintain this artificially high price, um, the, the people who lose are the people who are, expen- who are producing expensive oil. And Alberta and Newfoundland and Labrador are places where the oil is expensive. Will, um, will uh, fossil fuel continue to fuel the world after COVID-19, or will this be a big boost for uh, climate change activists and alternative forms of energy? So I don't know what's going to happen with the climate change movement, uh, but unless they are really uh, successful in their goals, I suspect we're in fact going to become, for at least the foreseeable future, more fossil fuel oriented because the price of fossil fuels is going to stay relatively low compared to what it's been, say, five years ago. Will that give uh, give governments more reason to tax uh, for taxation on fossil fuel? Well, that would be what the environmental movement would argue for. Uh, governments are going to have to find something to tax because they're spending a lot of money now, and that that money has to come from somewhere eventually. Uh, I don't know whether governments will, will pursue that. I think that will be one of the great political decisions facing Canadians as to whether they will support the parties that want to tax energy more or whether they'll support the parties that, that will go with other means, even though I think the reality is that everybody will have to think in terms of a higher tax environment uh, than we are in now. Uh, will we need to grow our way out of this? Or, in other words, what is going to take us out of this? Will we be fighting and bickering over energy policy and climate change and Canada will stall during a time of opportunity when everyone else is, is gearing back up? I don't know. That refers to the, to the political question. I think a lot of the growth will come more or less automatically as a bounce back. In other words, this is a very artificial and sudden reduction. Right. Uh, caused from non-standard factors. Uh, we have every reason to expect the economy will bounce back to where it was roughly. Uh, and then the decision will be what to do about the debt. At the moment, the debt will be pretty manageable because interest rates are going to be very low. Uh, so it won't be probably an immediate urgent uh, crisis situation. But on the other hand, it's obviously a much better position to be in uh, if you owe less money. Uh, governments were already... All our levels of government were already probably borrowing too much going in, and now there will be this additional debt on top of that. Uh, as you mentioned, this, uh, although we were, it seems cyclically, it had been 10, 12 years since the last recession, so many would say, uh, you know, it was time for another one anyway. That being said, this is a health-related or a self-inflicted recession, not a fiscal recession. Does it matter, and does it matter how we come out of this? What's the difference between the two? Yes, well, I've never been one to think that we're automatically due for recessions. I think the economy had been going along steadily, and I didn't really personally see any reason that it wasn't going to continue. If we think in terms of the difference, however, I think the difference is that, first, there are are measures that you can justify at a time like this that you couldn't justify ordinarily. So it's okay for the governments to be borrowing lots of money. It's it's natural. It's the right thing for them to be doing. Uh, I think that there is good reason to believe that the economy will will get back to roughly where it was. It will take some time. Your intercom stuff. Um, but I think as long as we have fairly low interest rates, it's probably going to be manageable. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, let's move to another avenue, another uh, layer in this uh, COVID-19 uh, onion, and that being education. Uh, we understand from the uh, premier that we will probably hear from the ministry, uh, Minister of Education uh, sometime this week in regard to uh, what is happening with the school year. Obviously, uh, the premier extended the uh, Emergency Measures Act with Ontario until about May 4th. He said the schools are not going to open uh, at May 4th or at that time. Uh, we were hoping that this would last a month and then perhaps get back to it. Uh, and now we're questioning whether... Uh, uh, or not, they, the kids will even be back prior to the end of the school year. Let's bring in Annie Kidder, People for Education. She is with us now. Annie, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. So we heard the Premier allude earlier on this week that uh, schools are not going to be opening up at the beginning of May. Uh, you get through May and then you're into June. Uh, a- a- any thoughts on the end of the year? Do you think we're just going to keep running with what we have right through till the end? Uh, it's, if only I had a crystal ball and could exactly. Tell you exactly I, I know I'm asking you questions. I know really, I'm asking you questions you can't answer. <laughs> no, it, and the real question, everybody, it's always, you know, when will this be over? I think it's highly unlikely that schools will reopen. If you look at what's happening across the country now, uh, most provinces, I think now it's most have said, you know, schools are closed indefinitely. And really, if you look at all of the other things people are talking about, it really seems hard to imagine uh, that schools will reopen, even though, I, you know, I don't have children at home. And if if I did, I would cry. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I really think it looks unlikely, you know, that we're in this new normal for probably at least another couple of months. And you have to think, too, what would be the advantage if we're going into May, then it's another month, we're into June. Uh, what would be the advantage to having them open uh, for the for the month of June, for the end of the year? I guess it would be great because uh, kids could finally see their friends before the end of the year and such. But if something goes terribly wrong, it, it would be ugly. I mean, I, can you really see any need for them to open them at this no, point? No, and I mean, I think you're right that that's, I mean, and that's what everybody is doing right now is that, it, you know, is weighing the risks. And I think that um, everyone is erring on the side of caution, which I, you know, I think we should all be grateful for. And um, it just, it, it seems as if, uh, you know, that as, as we're moving forward, we're, we're all going to get a little bit used to this. I've just been sitting in on a, an international conference with, you know, 3,000 3, people from around the world all talking about what's happening mm. in different countries and how countries are coping with this and the amazing job that teachers are doing because they really are doing an amazing job reaching out to students, figuring out new ways of teaching, of, of engaging students. And, but, it, you know, so it seems as if, you know, in this emergency, people are rising to the occasion and trying as hard as they can within, you know, a lot of constraints. You know, I even heard uh, 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 officials here with the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board say that they are making plans for this. Uh, just to be covered, uh, you know, with both scenarios here. But so one of the questions that was raised, and, and my daughter's in the same situation, she's in grade 12 this year, mm-hmm. uh, no graduation, no prom, none of that. But I guess mm-hmm. there's the chance that that could be rescheduled for next fall. 
could, but I think that what that brings up too is that, you know, and maybe hopefully it's made us all aware of the incredible role of schools themselves that, you know, there's one thing is, you know, trying to get information across, which certainly part of it can happen online, but school and education and learning is about so much more than that. And it is about the, the, the social aspects and the relationships. It's, you know, that's the whole working together part, but also having fun together, playing together, you know, going to grad together, um, you know, and the, all of the different grown-ups in schools are important. And and I think that, you know, it's making us all reminding everybody, I hope, that we have this incredible asset. We're incredibly lucky that we do. And maybe it's the, you know, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. But now that they're not there, um, I think that everybody's really feeling uh, how important they are as a kind of core part of our communities. And your poor how, daughter, that's it's a, it's a sad, hard way to end the year, too. Yeah. You know, yeah, we've had the discussion many times with her and her friends uh, in regard to this and what they're going to do, uh, you, you know, for the graduation and such. And, and I said to her, I said, you know, it will probably mean more this year than if you'd just gone through it normally because everybody will have wa- yeah. will want this so much it'll be extra special because you had to wait for it and such so you know I, I think as kids get towards the end of high school they're probably trying to blow it off and just looking at the next stage whereas this as you said i think it'll make them appreciate it a little bit more mm-hmm. uh if they get a chance to get back together in the fall um how can you see this whole process evolving like this all happened very quickly for everybody whether mm-hmm. you know you're working and then all of a sudden thrown out it you know into your home to work and such and so forth those the, the, those of us that are lucky enough to be able to do that uh, and then you know the kids and such with with uh, learning from home how has how will this evolve um, because obviously what they started with may not be with what they finish with well and I think I mean I guess even even a bigger question is and what are we going to learn from it and what parts of this will change in a positive way kind of education going forward so I think it is evolving every single second I think it has um, exposed or reminded us of the the inequities that exist for one thing Um, that doesn't just have to do with who has the internet and who doesn't but understanding that different families have different capacities uh, to, you know, work with their kids, support their kids to do this kind of learning, um, and that we have to remember that, that we can't just assume that all families are the same um, and that they all have, uh, you know, uh, yeah, the same sorts of capacities. And I think, and I think that going forward, and, and teachers are talking about this, um, that there, there is a chance to understand more about what are some aspects of online learning that are actually really interesting and kind of cool for students and could be embedded in, in classes. And I'm not talking about e-learning here or doing one course all online. No, but, I understand. Um, but I think that teachers are discovering um, some interesting ways of working with kids. I saw one teacher on Twitter who, who said that he or she, I can't remember, um, you know, had decided, with, these are with grade two students, um, that the thing that was working best was to give them a whole bunch of choices and say, pick two of these 
or, or pick one from each category. I can't remember what it was, but it was, but that that already um, was working better. And so hopefully that's the kind of learning then you take into, you know, when we, when we have schools again. So I think that there is, and listening to all these people internationally, people are trying interesting things. They're, they're working on the, the kind of engagement piece of this, of, of recognizing that learning isn't, you know, just math and reading and writing, but that there's lots of different ways to learn. And I think that that's the other thing that's really important for families and parents is to try to resist the pressure to be, you know, kind of homeschooling your children because right. most people didn't sign up for that. And and we, you know, we all have to take care, all of us, of our, they're kind of insane times. And it's, it's you know, I think that it's it's affected all of our, uh, our well-being or our mental health, and we have to we have to take care of that too. Or yeah, because it's 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 not fun living no. this way. No, no, and and you know I, I know it's just having my kids here, the twelve and seventeen year old, that they miss their friends greatly. They miss oh, yeah. the interaction of the school. And when we first started talking about learning at home. Um, you, you know, my son was thinking, well, this is going to be like a Zoom conversation. So will I be able to like see other kids in the class and yeah. such? And unfortunately, we don't seem to have got there yet. And, and we were, uh, they're all sitting at the kitchen table doing their stuff yesterday. And, you know, I was asking, like, is there not more interaction? How come mm-hmm. we're not seeing more of that? And, and I think my wife spoke up and said somebody had asked that of the local school board. And they said something about privacy issues and, and, and so on and so forth. And, and again, it just seemed to be more reasons for not doing it than doing it where you know I, I thought even for for my son's sake and and kids that are his age just to even over and above what they're getting in their little modules and stuff and such online but just to do a group call with yeah. with you know um the students in the classroom for even 15 20 minutes nothing learning related but just see what everybody's doing um no, but I, we don't I, we, we how come we don't see more of that I think I think you're really right about that, and I think that there's a lot of differences among different teachers. But I know I have a daughter who's in grad school, and when and all her courses went online for the last kind of month of grad school, and they did do a lot of you know they of talking when they got together about the situation, not about whatever the course was, but you know because you do want that human interaction. Yeah, just to keep and, the connection. Absolutely. And also, I mean, I know, you know, I work for an organization and their staff and uh, we were so excited the first time we did all get together in a meeting online and we could see each other's faces. And it's like, hi, hi, you know, because you you do miss that. I mean, it's weird. It's definitely not the same as being, uh, you know, actually face to face. But it is, you know, it's what we have to do now. So I do think and maybe as we progress, you know, in this time, teachers will find more ways of supporting that kind of interaction, because I really agree that we have to recognize it's an incredibly important part of the experience of education is that social interaction. And it needs to be, it's just as necessary, you know, as doing a math worksheet, you know, if not more necessary right now. So, uh, you know, but I think, as you said at the beginning, everybody's put this together so quickly um, that hopefully this is this will be one of the things that uh, that um, teachers and school boards will start working on. 
I was on a show the other day as, as a guest doing the same thing that, that we're doing right now. And, and one of the other guests, one of the other panelists, uh, their kid is in a private school, uh, fortunately for them. And, and she was saying that they were doing like six hours of work a day, <laughs> that there was the Zoom thing up and they were all interacting with each other. And, you know, I understand the private system is different from the public system, but why can't we learn from this? Why can't we meet in the middle somewhere? Well, again, I mean, what I would watch with that is that if you have a private school, you have probably, you know, all families in fairly similar situation, whatever that situation is, and who have bought into a similar or who have a desire for a similar way of learning. I think that for most families to to have the kind of infrastructure, if you will, at home to support a kid learning for six hours a day is very hard. There are families that where both parents are working at home and there's only two computers or only one computer, yeah. for instance, or the one computer where, would certainly be an issue. But as this person said, it was, it was a relief for them because the child was busy all day. I know, but you know, it's still, I'm yeah. not sure that all families have the capacity to support that yeah. sort of thing. And what about I can see you that. Know, kids in grade two or three who can't or won't or don't want to and parents who are stressed because they've lost their jobs or they're, yeah stressed because it's stressful and i think that that's that that's the thing that we have to be really really careful of is not assuming that all families are the same and have the same capacity or even desire uh to be doing this and you know i remember in the olden days when we used to take a lot of calls from parents half the parents would phone and complain about how much homework there was and the other half would phone and complain about there not being enough homework. Right. And I think right now yep. the same thing is happening with this distance learning. There are parents complaining that there's not enough and it should be longer. And other parents going, you know what, I can't cope with one hour of this. Mm. Um, and my kid is instead, you know, dancing, painting, cooking, whatever, watching videos, whatever it is, um, but learning in different ways. And I think that that's, we do have to be really, really careful that, you know, we're not expecting families to replace school, but that we definitely are finding ways to reach out to kids and, and support whatever it is that they can do. But it it is, it is I mean, what it exposes is the other great thing about school is that it's a, a fabulous kind of equalizer. All kids go in there, you're, you know, you have all the same kind of supports. And it's, and it does kind of, you know, level the playing field, if you will. Annie Kidder has been with us, People for Education. Annie, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated, and be okay. well. Thanks, Scott. You too. You take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.